This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by global cybersecurity company CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everyone. Good morning, and thank you for being here at this important Washington Post Live event on securing cyberspace. I'm Shane Harris. I cover intelligence and national security issues for The Post, and I'm very pleased to be here with Chris Painter, uh, who my colleague Kathy Baird introduced. Of course, the first State Department's first coordinator for cyber issues, uh, and now the president of Global Forum on Cyber Expertise. So Chris, welcome, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. And I'm very glad to have you here to help us kick this off and set the stage because your portfolio was sort of the world uh, on cyber, and it still is, as we've been talking about before we came out here. So. Uh, you have been at the State Department, you had roles at DOJ, the FBI, the White House, the National Security Council over a few decades in government. Let's just start with a big picture. Talk to us a bit about how the cyber threat landscape has evolved in comparison to U.S. defense capabilities yeah. over the course of your career. So I'd say two things. I've been doing cyber now for 33 years, so before there was a World Wide Web, but not before there was an Internet, and I started like prosecuting hacker cases back in the 90s. As you said, when I was at DOJ, I'm very happy Lisa Monaco is here. She's been also involved a long time and is doing great things at the Justice Department. But there are two things I've seen. When I was prosecuting some of the early hacker cases, like Kevin Mitnick and others, people didn't care about this mm. much. They were like seen as Robin Hoods. They were like, well, this doesn't really affect me. It's kind of an interesting thing. To the extent that these hacks happened or there were big thefts, they became front page news because they were oddities. They were, you know, the press thought it was really great. Right. But it's like war you, games. You yeah. get attention for like <laughs> 10 minutes and then it would disappear, right? Uh, and for many years we said this really needs to be a priority because we're going to be so dependent on these, but it didn't really happen right away. It took an evolution. And we saw the threats increase, not just the criminal threats, but nation state threats. Uh, we always talk about terrorist threats, but we still haven't seen terrorists. I mean, the terrorists use the internet to be sure, but they don't actually attack systems. So we saw this trend line where the attacks would get more sophisticated. You still had the stupid people too. So you still had the kind of run-of-the-mill hackers. I used, when I was a prosecutor, one of the cases I did early on was a bank robbery case, because uh, LA was the bank ro robbery capital of the world. Uh, and the guy who robbed the bank wore a mask, but he also had a name tag on because he was a janitor uh, <laughs> next door. So you love those job cases. Easy. <laughs> well, you got him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but but you know you have these like script kiddies, these other kind of hackers who are not that sophisticated. But you also had very sophisticated hackers, transnational organized criminal groups mm -hmm. uh, of hackers who were going in the systems, uh, targeting financial things, and then nation states who are very sophisticated, particularly Russia, China. North Korea and Iran, and you saw that growing over time. At the same time, our dependence on these all these technologies became far greater. And it, you know, it became it, it continued to become an issue at the end of the Bush administration. There was a launch of something called the Comprehensive National Cyber Initiative because there was worry of how, how this would affect critical infrastructure, including our financial sector. Uh, we had election interference, which none of us were ready for. We had the cyber people worried about cyber attacks, espionage from China, which was rampant. Uh, other attacks by Iran and others against our financial system and critical infrastructure. We weren't, weren't ready for that blended threat mm -hmm. when that happened. Uh, but I think what really was transformative was uh, when we had the advent, uh, you know, the really ramping up of ransomware attacks and the war in Ukraine. So ransomware attacks, as I think many people know, are these disruptive attacks. They both disrupt an organization or a government and they extort that organization or government at the same time. So they have two different parts of them. Uh, and when we had the one on colonial pipelines that 
uh, shut down fuel distribution on the East Coast, where people had to wait in line for gas, or the meatpacking plant uh, that people thought they couldn't get their hamburger, or the Irish healthcare system. This brought it home to an issue for everyone and made it more of a political priority. And I think you've seen this. Obama's campaign was hacked, so he took it seriously, uh, launched uh, things at the NSD there, which I was part of. But when Biden came in, I think it was a real priority for him. And the ransomware issues and then the war in Ukraine really escalated that. Uh, and the other good thing is, you know, we always fought to get people to understand this. Uh, you don't have to be, you talk to, you know, it used to be you talked to senior officials with some exceptions, like Janet Reno totally understood this. She was really into cybercrime long before everyone, not into it, she was into fighting it. Uh, <laughs> she wasn't the bad guy. No, she wasn't the bad guy. Uh, she was really, you know, she prioritized this. Uh, and that's why I first met Lisa, because she worked for her at that point. And that was unusual at the time, because usually you go to a senior official or, or CEO, and they'd run screaming from the room. It's like, oh, this is a technical issue. You guys deal with this. I don't understand it. And it's not. It's a geopolitical issue. It's a, a bottom line issue. And I think CEOs started seeing that with ransomware. I think government started seeing that. And the good thing, the lesson of all this becoming worse and more challenging, and AI is another challenge over time, is that now it's being seen more of as a priority, and that's good. I think, it, just, I have to think back to when I started reporting on this in earnest in 2005. Yeah. I mean, at a point where nobody even wanted to talk about the fact that China was behind hacking for industrial espionage because that was classified and sources and methods. So you couldn't even really have a conversation. But something that people kept keying in on was this idea. I'm sure you found some people in the government. Some people, don't worry, I'm pretty good at that. Uh, but that this idea that it was going to take people at the executive level, you know, presidential level yeah. buy-in. And that kind of happens episodically. It does seem to kind of shift with Obama coming in, as you said, he'd been hacked. But there's also this whole infrastructure of people below that executive yeah. level, people who were in these leadership positions like you. Has the government kind of filled in those places now such that there's more of you across the government? Yeah, I mean, I'd say two things. One, you know, it was also Obama who took the theft of intellectual property by China seriously yeah. for the first time and raised it with President Xi. Had that and famous we, summit where they yeah, tried to get and the Chinese to stop. And we negotiated, helped lead the negotiations with China to come up with a deal on mm -hmm. that. And I think you know, the reaction of the Chinese is, why are you raising this cyber issue at first? And then, but Obama <laughs> kept raising it and was very significant. But they were really surprised by that? I think they were. I think, you know, they're like, we have all these other issues. Why are you raising this cyber Because you're stealing issue? our stuff is what well, we're raising. Exactly. Right? And I think <laughs> what was good about that is consistency from him, from every high-level member of the administration mm -hmm. over a, a several-year period. So they understood this wasn't going to go away. Yeah. And, and that's why I think they ended up yeah. reaching a deal on that. But... One of the things that's good is, and we'll take this administration as a great example, uh, Biden worked on these issues when he was vice president, you know, especially the China hacking and other issues. So that's great. Uh, Ali Mayorkas and I were prosecutors together out in Los Angeles. He was a U.S. attorney. And he obviously did a lot of work in the last administration and the, the Obama administration on this issue. Avril Haines uh, has worked on this. Bill, Bill uh, CIA has worked on this. Uh, Lisa has, uh, Monaco, who you're having later on, has dealt with this. Um, Tony uh, Blinken, uh, when he was deputy, I worked with him closely on these issues. So you have this cadre of people who are not coming in fresh. You don't have to teach them how, why this is important. And so that's critical at that high level. And at the mid-level, you have lots of really good people. And I think there's been good work at, you know, at the National Security Council, uh, Ann Neuberger, uh, Kemba uh, Walden right now, with the, uh, the, and before that, Chris Inglis. So you have now a, an infrastructure of people. Chris Krebs, certainly, who's going to be on next, mm -hmm. was one of those people. 
which is good, because you need that. You need both the high-level buy-in, but they're not going to be doing the day-to-day you know, -day work, and you need the people who are really, really going to run the policy. Right. And what's also good is it's not just us. Increasingly around the world, other countries are mirroring this. So you know, when I was at the State Department, I was the first cyber, you know, full-time kind of dedicated high-level cyber diplomat in the world, and that was only 2011. Uh, there are now 45 of them around the world now in friendly countries and not so friendly countries, but that makes it more of an important policy issue and it allows you to have much more cooperation between countries. Yeah. So let's talk about some hotspots and one of the inflection points yeah. you mentioned where this idea is kind of now penetrating the consciousness is the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Before the invasion began, I think a lot of people were expecting that cyber warfare was going to feature very prominently. You were going to see attacks by Russia on Ukrainian critical infrastructure, knocking out the communications, the electrical system, right? And to some degree, it feels, I think, to some of us observing that that was kind of the dog that didn't bark because we haven't seen a lot of those attacks. Is that the right way to think of it? No. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's a bad narrative, a false narrative, uh, fake news, maybe. <laughs> to use that term. Uh, but you know, I think, I think part of it, that the expectations were never realistic, that cyber would be the deciding factor in, in a physical war. That was never going to be true. And I think, it's, you know, I think we're a victim of our own hype in that mm -hmm. sense. You know, so many people, I hate these terms, talk about a cyber 9-11, a cyber Pearl Harbor. We have to wait for that to happen. And that's not the only thing that can happen. And what we did see in Ukraine, if you recall, is cyber being used very effectively early on by Russia to knock out the Viasat system, the, the uh, communication system, which you totally expect before ground troops come in. And we also saw them using cyber, and they still do continually throughout the conflict. I mean, the, our little video in the beginning yeah. talked about that as well, uh, to try to go after critical infrastructure and try to disrupt communications. So it's playing the role I think we should expect it to play. And I think the wrong lesson to draw is that cyber didn't bark, and therefore it's not that important an issue, because it's playing mm -hmm. a critical integrated role, as you'd expect in any conflict. The other thing is, look, if, you're, if you have an uh, infrastructure, let's say you have a power plant you want to blow up, why expend a valuable cyber tool to do that when you can simply launch a missile? When you're on the ground, you're actually in a shooting war. Now, if you're not in a shooting war, you'll do what Russia did for years before that. Try to you know, test things, go after power grids, go after other things to disrupt Ukrainian services. Use disinformation, which is a whole new another area. And we're not going to see that go away. So I, 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 think, I think thinking this is not a big issue because of the Ukraine war, I take the exact opposite mm -hmm. of view, that it is a big issue. It's being used exactly in the way we think. And in fact, I think the Ukraine war, and you talk to the Ukrainians, and they'll tell you this all the time, it's been a major part of this. And the help that the Ukrainians have gotten from the US, from companies, from other countries around the world on this issue, and the fact that they've essentially been in a real life tabletop exercise since the first invasion of Ukraine has made them be able to deal with this far better than I think people thought they would. So should we be looking at the Ukraine war then as kind of the, is it the first hybrid war where you genuinely have the cyber mixed with the conventional? I don't think it's the first, but it's certainly the most significant. So we saw this in Georgia a long time ago. We yeah, saw other right. times when we've seen this in the context of a conflict, but I think this has been the most sustained and major, just like the conflict itself has been the most sustained and major conflict. I think we've seen it really integrated by both sides, uh, you know, by Ukraine too, using it. And so, you know, and that's why I expect what will happen in the future. It will never be when we're actually in a shooting war the deciding factor, but it will be part of the arsenal. Let's say we had war over the South China Sea. It will be used to try to disrupt communications and shipping lanes. It will, be, it will always be a component, just like 
other types of warfare have different kinds of components. It's going to be a, a matter of, of life going forward. And you mentioned something I think is important too, and we could just maybe dwell on a second, is that defensive component. Before the war began, you know, this is, we've reported on this at the Post and others have too, the Ukrainians did get a lot of help from the United yep. States, from the British, in fortifying yep. those systems and kind of building them up. It sounds like that also is kind of a key piece of this and probably a lesson for countries in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think for, for Ukraine, you know, it was, it was learning by, you know, they were fending these things off for many years. And two, there was a lot of assistance. There was a lot of focus in this area. There's a lot of focus, for instance, in the Western Balkans now for the same reason. Estonia is a great example because Estonia had the 2007 denial, what they called denial of service attacks that went after their e-voting and the other e-services. Mm -hmm. It didn't really shut Estonia down, but it was sort of a wake-up call for people on how this works. So, you know, that building those defenses and anticipating uh, these attacks and, and being better at it is something we all need to do. And one of the things I do now is I run this organization called the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise. It, it is uh, 70 countries, civil society, companies all over the world helping countries build up their defenses, help them have strategies in place, help, help them have incident response and what they call computer emergency response teams in place so they can deal with these threats and cooperate internationally. And that's a critical part of this. That's, that's one part, and you know, the U.S. has been a leader in this, but I think it's something we have to really invest in uh, for many reasons. One, it helps those countries. Two, it also tells those countries that our view of the world, of how the Internet works, a free and open and secure Internet is the way to go rather than a more repressive system. For, you know, for all, throughout the years that this threat has been evolving, there's also been a lot of conversations about, you know, do we need a treaty for cyberspace? Do we need to apply that kind of thinking? Curious to have your thoughts on that, and also whether you think we kind of have something like that de facto in place now insofar as, you know, I think Russia probably understands that if they launched a cyber attack on the U.S. that ended in, you know, loss of life and economic disaster, there would be a massive response in return from yeah, us. Yeah, so there's two, there are two parts, but I'll, I'll talk to the cybercrime cyber and cybersecurity treaty one first. For a long time, Russia has pushed this idea of having a treaty, and China too, governing cyberspace. Now, what they mean by that is not just dealing with attacks. They want to they want to control content. They, they view, you know, uh, information warfare. They call it, they don't call it cybersecurity, they call it you know, information security. And there's a reason for that, because they want to control information. So we can't obviously sign up to that. The West can't sign up to that. And they've been pushing this in the UN and other venues for a long time, and it's been a constant fight. We've countered by saying, look, we need to have an understanding of what the rules of the road in cyberspace. Don't attack a critical infrastructure in peacetime. Uh, wartime, there are certain rules, but you have to live by those rules, international law. Um, and there should be consequences if you do these things. Don't go after the certs, like they're, they're the hospitals, the ambulances on the Internet. So those kind of rules of the road, getting countries to agree to that and moving that forward, having confidence-building measures, having international law, those have always been really critical, and I think those are, those are part of the, the, the kind of framework we're trying to put in place and was even talked about the UN, the big UN week last mm -hmm. week by, by Tony and others. So that, that is really an important part of this. The second part I think you're, you're dealing with, and so, no, we don't want to, at least for the next many years, I don't think we can, we're going to get agreement on a global instrument that's going to work. We are negotiating right now a global treaty on cybercrime in the UN. It's going slow, and again, you have these same battles about what's in, what's out, what's content, what's not. You know, I heard, I remember the Chinese delegate at one of these meetings, which I've been going to both of these things, saying, um, 
you know, maybe we should have a law against rumors about natural disasters. And you, know, you can see where that comes from. Like, right. Maybe not. Uh, so that's <laughs> a law on rumors. The second part of your question goes to this idea of deterrence, or can you deter um, these actors, and how do you, you know how do you do that? And I do think deterrence works at that high level. I mm -hmm. think. You're right. I think Russia and China understand that if they, you know, if we don't have a physical war going on, if they do something that causes death or destruction in the U.S., there'll be major consequences. The question is in that gray area below that, where we're seeing the espionage, which never has been an international law violation, right. or the kind of more disruptive stuff, which does uh, cause problems. And that's where these norms, these agreements about rules of the road come in. And what we haven't been as good at is, I think, imposing consequences when people violate those. So when, you know, countries, you know, Russia certainly has done this. When they do things that violate those rules that they've agreed to, you know, as voluntary rules, but they're still political commitments, we need to have consequences. We've been better. I think this administration has been focusing on that. That's great. But we need to, you know, we need to actually show that we can. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy to do that. But, and that requires not just the U.S., but the U.S. working collectively with lots of countries together uh, on this framework and this idea that, you know, we, we believe in the rules-based order. So let's, let's take China then, because it's, it's a good jump off point for something specific. Obviously, it seems like their activity is largely focused on, on espionage. I mean, economic espionage and traditional yeah. state espionage, stealing yeah. state secrets. So what is the effective deterrence? Like, what are the consequences that U.S. can say to China, if you keep this up, here's how we're going to respond? Yeah, I think, I think it's hard because countries have been involved in espionage since the beginning of time. I mean, and they'll be involved in espionage until the end of time. So traditional espionage to protect your citizens, that's going to happen. So you can't say that's off the table. I mean, no country is going to agree, yeah. don't do that. Because we do a lot of that, too. Everyone in the does. I mean, and we, and we, yeah, I mean, you know, yes, and, and there's reasons for that. Commercial espionage is different. You know, going after the life's blood of another country's economy and trying to duplicate that, that's something the U.S. doesn't do. That's something, you know, we don't think anyone should do. And that was the subject of our negotiation with China back in, in uh, 2015, mm -hmm. when we reached the agreement where, you know, after there was an indictment of the PLA officers and they still didn't really do anything on this, finally she was coming to town and, you know, they agreed that no country should do this. And it was agreed in the G20. Now, does it happen still? Yes. Oh, of course. Uh, and that raises this other issue that kind of goes to the deterrence issue, too, which is, you know, it's not a China cyber issue or a Russia cyber issue. It is a, all of government. It's a problem with China or a problem with Russia. We can't think about this as how we respond with China, uh, cyber tools. We have to think about all the levers of power we have, diplomatic, economic, everything. And so the way I think you deal with that, because you know, if, if we continue to see violations and they have violated that agreement, what can you do? And the you know, Justice Department has, I think, done very good things in indictments that has some effect, but these people are unlikely to travel to the U.S. I think it's a good messaging and disruptive effect. We've tried to disrupt these groups. I think that's been good, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think we need to, and we need to continue to raise it at the high level as part of our suite of issues where we are working with the country. Now, a country like North Korea or Russia, not a lot of leverage points right no. now. We don't, you know, there's not a lot and of... This is lar and that's largely criminal activity as well. Well, and that's... Well, with, with the sponsorship yeah, with, of the state. You know, I, I think this is continuum. With Russia, I used to lead the G8 high-tech crime group when Russia was in it, and then the G7. With Russia, some of it's corruption. Some of it's like independent groups. As long as they're not attacking Russia, Russia turns a blind eye. And some of it's you know, Russia saying, OK. So as long as you have those safe havens for criminals, that's another real issue. So you know, I think I, I love, uh, I was talking about back 
stage. I, you know, I love the comment that Rob Joyce made a few years ago that Russia is like uh, a hurricane and China's like climate change. Mm -hmm. This is going to continue. They're going to be a strategic competitor, as I think the yeah. national security strategy said, for a long time. But there are things we need to really be strong about, and economic espionage is certainly one of them. And it seems like, to your point, too, just to underscore this, from the Chinese perspective, they do not have the same moral qualms about econ economic espionage the way that we do. Well, so, yeah. right? so trying to convince them that it's wrong is not the right approach. That was a really interesting change, because when I, we first started talking about them, they said, well, first of all, there's no difference between economic espionage and normal espionage. And second, we don't do either. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, OK, sure. Right. Um, and it was really at that meeting, this all-night meeting uh, that we had before uh, a week before she came to town, where they, they said, OK, we accept the difference and we'll agree that no country should do it, um, the economic part, the, yeah. not the you know, normal intelligence sure. government. But, and we yeah. weren't asking them to stop that. No, because you know, no country will. Right. But that, that economic part. And they did live by that for a couple of years. There was a significant diminution mm -hmm. in those kinds of attacks for a while. Yeah. But you know, when the whole geopolitical situation fragmented even more with China, which I said you have to look at this in the larger geopolitical context, then that kind of went out the window. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a challenge. Yeah, and I think that that's that's a great place to end it and to, to remind people that when we talk about these cyber threats, framing them in the context of geopolitical yeah. priorities and ambitions and policies really is a great way to think about it. I, I always would say to senior officials, with the exception of a few, often who would run out of the room and say it's a technical issue, why are you telling me this? which is not true anymore, uh, that you don't need to be a coder to understand the geopolitical issues, just like you don't need to be a nuclear engineer to understand the geopolitical issues behind nuclear weapons, nuclear power, et cetera. And I, the more we mainstream this as a policy and a technical issue, the better off I think that we'll be, the more secure we'll be. Well, that's a great way to frame the discussion for the rest of the day. We're out of time for now. Uh, Chris Painter, thank you so much for being sure. up here with us. Happy to that's be great. here. And I will be back with you all in a bit uh, with Chris Krebs, the former director of CISA. So please stay with us. Thanks a lot. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. I'm Drew Bagley. I'm the head of privacy and public policy at CrowdStrike. And I'm joined today with someone who needs no introduction, the Executive Assistant Director of Cybersecurity at CISA, Eric Goldstein. Thank you so much for being here today. It is great to be here, Drew, thanks to the CrowdStrike team and the team of The Post. This will be a great conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. So let's dive right in. First off, in recent, in recent years, and especially in the, in the past year, we've seen the US government introduce a couple of key strategies related to cybersecurity namely the 2024 to 2026 cybersecurity strategy, as well as the national cybersecurity strategy. I understand CISA obviously has played a leading role in both of those strategies, and I was wondering, when you think about those strategies, what do you think is most impactful and what are you most excited about? Yeah, it's, it, it has been a remarkably big year for, or actually a couple of years for national cybersecurity strategies, right? We have the, the national cybersecurity strategy from the White House, we have CISA's agency strategic uh, plan, and then we recently released our cybersecurity uh, strat plan as well. And there's a few really important through lines that are reflected in all of these documents. Uh, the first and maybe the most important fundamental one is this idea of the need to drive a shift in accountability in cybersecurity. And I think we'll talk more as we go about secure by design and what that means in practice. But the overarching concept here is we have fallen into a 
somewhat ineffectual model in cybersecurity where the first place we look to cast blame or drive improvement is on the victims of intrusions. And we know that for some victims, in some cases, that might make sense, right? It might be a big enterprise that actually had some control failure or control gap. But in many cases, these are school districts. These are small hospitals. These are water utilities. And the national cybersecurity strategy really is a clarion call to say, let's shift the burden for security to those who can bear it. And let's stop blaming school districts and water utilities for poor security when they were never going to be able to withstand an attack from the adversaries, whether nation states or criminal groups, that we are seeing. And let's instead look for scalable solutions to the problem, looking to the vendor and product community to produce solutions that have the right controls enabled by default and are designed in a way that reduces exploitable conditions. And let's, let's look to government to provide more support, more information to fill gaps where needed. I'll call out just two other, I think, important aspects, one broad, one narrow. The broad one is just an ongoing focus on partnership and on collaboration. And the key point there is we've been talking about partnership for decades. But if we've learned one thing from practically every recent major intrusion affecting American organizations, the private sector is going to see it first. And so how do we get to a model where we have frictionless cultural collaboration, where we knock down the barriers, whether they are straw people or not, to say if any of us is seeing something that looks like the leading edge of a new adversary campaign, let's collectively share it with urgency so we can take action in response. The final piece, which I just have to have to do a shout out for, is the focus on open source security. And CISA recently released our open source security roadmap. This is really important because if we think of where the US government has focused historically, open source has not been at the top of the list. That's really changed with this administration. And so we're focused on both supporting the developers and maintainers who produce the open source projects that are critical to our critical infrastructure and government agencies, but also to look for points of leverage in the ecosystem, like repositories and such, that can actually ensure that the open source software we are using is ideally less vulnerable and certainly not malicious by design. One of the themes that stands out from uh, what you just dove into with regard to the strategy is this notion of cybersecurity haves and have nots, which we obviously see that in the private sector, but we especially see that in the public sector with certain government agencies that are less well resourced from a security standpoint than others, because in part decades ago that, that wasn't uh, one of the issues, one of the key funding issues that it was thought that agency would have to face. Do you see um, this movement to, um, you know, one of the things you addressed a moment ago was shifting that burden away from the victims. Do you see that as a way for government to look at more of a shared services model and protect the government in the public sphere as more of an enterprise? It has to be. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about target-rich, resource-poor entities. These are these organizations that are being targeted every day by advanced persistent threats, by sophisticated criminal groups, but simply don't have the resources to help themselves. There's a few ways that we get after that problem. One way is by giving these entities confidence that when they are purchasing a technology, whether it is an operating system, an application on down the line, that that product is going to be reasonably secure against the threats we are 
interface, which unfortunately today, many products simply aren't. Uh, but we also know that these entities have extraordinarily limited security budgets. So the more that government and the broader cybersecurity community can help these organizations say, if we have a finite uh, amount of dollars, how can we invest those resources against the controls and security measures that create the most impact? That's, that's the intent behind CISA's cross-sector cybersecurity performance goals, which are a set of, of outcome-oriented actions to say, if you do nothing else, do these first in a way that's prioritized by complexity, by cost, and impact. And the final piece, as you noted, is how can we flow help to these entities. That help could be um, free or discounted services provided by cybersecurity companies, it could be government shared services, it could just be funding. And so at CISA, we are really excited to be rolling out the second year of our state and local cyber grant program. Right. That is one great way to Very flow resources, um, absolutely, um, to these entities. Uh, but that of course only covers public entities. And so going forward, we'll want to collectively explore ways to make sure that we can raise the security baseline across these entities that simply can't be defensible today. One key theme you just hit on over and over again was collaboration. So I understand at CISA you're collaborating with many entities inside and outside of government, but with NCD specifically, especially thinking about the cybersecurity strategy, how are you collaborating with NCD? You know, CISA at our core is an operational agency, and, and our, our goal is to drive operational risk reduction outcomes for the country. You know, you mentioned earlier our new cybersecurity strategic plan. One of the real changes in that plan is for the first time we are pushing out true outcome measures, saying, yes, we came to work today, but did the work drive the change we're seeking? And so at CISA, we are really focused on driving operational security change. But as only one agency, we can't always bring together the ecosystem of partners to drive scalable change across the broader community. And so our partners like NCD are really invaluable in looking at all the different levers at the government's disposal, whether it is the federal budget, whether it is regulation, uh, whether it is policy, and making sure that, that every lever we have, we are deploying toward our shared goal of improving cybersecurity outcomes, even as CISA is focusing on our operational and technical so that holistic view is valuable That's for right. that partnership. Absolutely. One of the um, things we think about with regard to the cybersecurity strategy that really stands out, that's a game changer, especially for that notion we both hit on a moment ago about shifting from the victim to those who are best suited to secure devices and software is security by design and default. That was a key theme not only in the strategy, but also in um, the key principles that CISA rolled out with allied countries in the spring of this year. So with security by design and default, um, what are some of the key initiatives you're looking to drive? What sort of meaningful impact do you think we'll see in the near future? This is perhaps the most fundamental shift in cybersecurity of this administration, because the core point is, We've been asking the wrong questions around cybersecurity. And the main question that we ask when a breach happens is, shouldn't that victim organization have done something differently? Um, instead of asking, that organization is dependent on technology products for their critical business functions. Were those technology products designed in a way that was reasonably likely to reduce the prevalence of the intrusion that impacted that victim? And some, some uh, as aspects of the way that we think about technology would be anathema 
in any other field. For example, the fact that we expect technology products to be shipped to customers with known flaws that will be addressed after the fact, perhaps on a, on a monthly basis. If we extend that to cars or medical devices or really anything else that we use, our toasters at home, um, it, it will be mind boggling. Right. But, but with technology products, we just accept this culture of going to production with a high likelihood of exploitable flaws. That needs to change, particularly when we know that categorically many of the flaws we see can be addressed by doing things like uh, using memory-safe coding languages, using parameterized queries as a couple of examples, right? We know how to reduce the prevalence of vulnerabilities, and frankly, we make business decisions as a society to not do so. That's a cultural shift that we need to see occur, otherwise the victims are going to be the same school districts, water utilities, small American businesses that are being impacted every day. But we also need to make sure that strong security controls aren't a revenue driver, right? That they are coming with the product by default. And so, you know, just as one example, you know, we applauded Microsoft's recent decision uh, to make uh, basic security logs available at a lower license tier for some of their products. Um, that is merely a, a tentative step in the right direction. Um, and we need to go dramatically further to say, if you are purchasing a technology product as a customer, you deserve to be secure. You deserve to have the features in that product that are going to keep you safe, and we need customers across sectors, including government, to demand that right. Uh, at CISA, we are really excited to be releasing the next version of our Secure by Design guidance in the coming weeks. Uh, we have a vast array uh, of countries uh, who are aligned with us on this effort, and we'll also be putting that out for some public comment uh, to make sure that we are getting the best sense of the global community in that guidance, but the goal here is that we want customers to say, I deserve to be secure, and here's something to point to to demand a different outcome. Yeah, with regard to logs, even uh, the concept of immutable logs, where you have logs that an adversary cannot alter after the fact are fundamentally important. That's right, that's right. And so I, I think that's something that's important to shift. Um, another area that we've been focused on a lot at CrowdStrike is identity threat detection and response, especially in an era in which we have actors that are either uh, harvesting credentials or using legitimate credentials that um, they've obtained in various ways to access resources, to move laterally throughout an environment. Uh, we've seen this, of course, with Vanguard Panda, also known as Volt Typhoon. Mm -hmm in recent months, um, and we've seen, uh, you know, the, the U.S. government, of course, fall victim to authentication-based attacks. How are you thinking about identity threat detection and response at CISA and for the government as a whole? You know, as we, as we think about adversary tactics, techniques, and procedures, identity-based attacks need to be our North Star, right? That is where we are seeing every major threat actor beginning to move because frankly that is the that is the way to affect a scale compromise right. of an environment and so we are seeing for the past several years this being really ubiquitously where adversaries are looking this is a somewhat different way to look at 
potential intrusions and, and related controls, and it also requires enterprises to have much better control over their environment so that they can do things like uh, detect misuse of legitimate tools um, that might be, be used for a unusual purpose, showing impossible travel, um, being used at, a, at an unusual time of day. That requires a level of baseline knowledge of the environment and the ability with automation to detect anomalies that frankly today, uh, too few entities have. You know, with the recent uh, widely reported intrusion into Microsoft Exchange Online, you know, it was very frankly some great analytic work done, done by the State Department, as has been reported publicly, um, that enabled them to identify uh, just some unusual activity which otherwise might have gone undetected for longer. And so we need more organizations to understand that if all you're doing is looking for signs of known malware or signs of unusual command and control con connections, you're gonna miss it. Uh, and you have to focus on understanding what normal looks like and then rigorously assessing deviations therefrom. Yeah, I think it's fundamental that in cybersecurity we think about visibility. And if you don't know what your gaps are, if you don't know what's going on in your environment, then how are you going to defend against it? Obviously, I think with the executive order from a couple of years ago, we've seen a lot of positive developments in the endpoint space. And so similarly, that identity plane is one that needs to be protected as well. You just mentioned the need to be able to detect anomalous behavior. And I think uh, no discussion today would be complete without us using the buzz words of artificial intelligence. So here's your AI question, your token AI question. Um, you know, when we think about AI and cybersecurity, AI's been in cybersecurity for a very long time, even though uh, AI uh, these days is talked about as if it's brand new to the whole world. Um, but, you know, AI provides a huge advantage to defenders and the ability to detect zero days, to detect the unknown unknowns. Um, how do you see the importance of leveraging AI in protecting the U.S. government and in cybersecurity as a whole? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we are really excited about the opportunities for AI to address some of these scale challenges um, that really bedevil us in cybersecurity today. Uh, you know, you mentioned the ability to analyze um, uh, you know vast amounts of, of alert information. Another example that we're excited about is the ability to rewrite insecure code bases um, in a way that, frankly, human developers are just never going to have uh, the time or resources to do. And so we think that there's a lot of potential there. And what we have to figure out. Uh, as a community is first, uh, how can we make sure that we are able to use AI tools in a way that is safely and responsibly, but also uh, uh, with agility, so we are not falling behind the adversaries, use of AI tools, which we know is also uh, an emergent uh, aspect of the space, but also how do we have confidence in the security of the AI tools themselves? Right. And you know, uh, uh, two of our experts at CISA just released a blog post uh, saying, you know, software must be secure by design and AI is no exception. We think that's really important because one of the greatest risks we see with AI from a cybersecurity context is we think about uh, software security over here and AI security over here. And so some of the lessons we have learned in securing software for, for code testing, for peer review, for vulnerability transparency, for bug bounty, for red teaming, all of that needs to be applied rigorously to AI systems, and so we're working closely with many of the Frontier Labs and other partners to make sure that we are not making some of the same mistakes in securing AI systems that we made with software decades ago. Absolutely, yeah, just like with other types of software, AI, of course, can uh, be extremely helpful, especially in defending environments, but it can also open up environments to risk if not done properly. That's right.
Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today, but that was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Eric, and thank you to the Washington Post for putting this event together. Really Thanks appreciate so much. it. Always a pleasure. Thanks, all. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hello, and for those of us uh, just joining us, uh, welcome back. I'm Shane Harris, reporter here at The Post, covering intelligence and national security. I'm very pleased to be joined by Chris Krebs, the former director of CISA, who you just heard from there, and now he's here. Chris, that welcome back to Washington Post Live. It's great to be back in person. It's good to see you. Um, so let's start with a report from uh, your former department, DHS, earlier this month, a report on cyber threats outlining the biggest cyber threats in 2024. Among those listed were cybercrime, attacks on critical infrastructure, cyber espionage, misinformation and disinformation, election interference, and emerging technologies, which could be a nice big bucket. Um, so take your pick. Which of those is the most <laughs> significant as far as, as you're concerned? Which would we should be most uh, concerned about? I, look, we talk a lot about the advanced persistent threats. We talk a lot about China. We talk about Russia. It's the sexy thing. It gets the attention of the board. It drives sales cycles. But uh, unfortunately, it's cybercrime that is the threat that faces every single organization. If you are connected in any way to the internet as a organization or as an individual, you are on the playing field. You are a opportunistic target for cyber criminals. And, and cyber criminals, you know, the reason ransomware exists, it's, it's three elements. There are three legs to the stool. First is that we have these vulnerable, misconfigured systems out there, whether in the home or in the, in the workplace. The second is they figured out how to monetize those vulnerabilities and extract value via Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And the third is, generally speaking, they work from safe harbors like Russia. And until we address all three of those factors, cybercrime is here to stay. So how do we go about doing that? Like, how would you attack each of those three pieces? Well, uh, it, it does take that kind of, it's a little cliche to say, but it is a whole of nation. Sure. And, and just to be clear, even if we solve the problem here in the United States, uh, the world's a big place. And so they go elsewhere where perhaps they don't spend as much on information security. Uh, but on the first leg, uh, we have to continue to drive efforts like what we just heard uh, Eric talk about with the national cybersecurity strategy of awareness, but also investment, some regulation, uh, as well as really getting those choke points in the technology stack. Uh, those that can defend best need to defend better. Uh, on uh, cryptocurrency, we need to continue taking efforts through the Treasury Department and the Justice Department to identify the choke points within that economy and hit the hit the, uh, the mixers, start sanctioning groups harder so they cannot extract that value. They can they can probably lock them up and get some Bitcoin, but they can't actually get the cash. And the third's frankly the hardest, right? It's, it's actually trying to get Russia to take the right steps. Uh, we saw a little bit of that perhaps after the colonial pipeline attack, but we, we know that they, they really aren't prosecuting at home because it actually, a, a robust cybercrime ecosystem emanating from Russia actually benefits the Kremlin. It aligns with the strategic objectives of Putin uh, to, to disrupt and interfere with the West. But again, it is not just Russia. We're seeing recently, perhaps, with MGM and Caesars out in Vegas, uh, that there may be some U.S. citizens, there may be some, some British citizens that are involved in this cybercrime ecosystem. How many, when we talk about the victims of this, these ransomware attacks, I mean, Colonial Pipeline, it seems to be the one that kind of fixed everyone's attention. Right. We're talking hospitals. We're well, talking it, it, the reason it fixed everybody's attention because it hit D.C. 
In fact, okay. DC, right? <laughs> That's interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it had been we had to wait for, for gas here too. Yeah, yeah exactly, right. exactly. But it really has kind of like it seems like it's crossed. I mean, you even now seeing it playing out in popular television shows, right? Yeah. To say you have ransomware attacks. What are the really are the most? Because everybody could be a target, as you mm -hmm. said. But from a government perspective, and really a state and local government perspective, maybe too, what are the key places they need to focus on? Is it hospitals? Is it critical infrastructure? Which are the ones where, way, where they should be putting their limited resources into? Deterrence, maybe, but really defense and recovery and resilience from these kinds yes. of things that are just going to keep coming. Yes. Which one? Yes. <laughs> yes to all of them. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Again, it is everyone yeah. that has any sort of di uh, digital connectivity. Now, the banks are stacked up pretty well. Yeah. And have been for a long time. They've invested. I mean, some, some of the larger banks uh, literally have about a billion dollars a year on InfoSec spend. Yeah. That is significant. That's extraordinary. Think about yeah. how that plays out down at a local hospital, schools, state and local agencies. It's, there's an asymmetry of, of opportunity and resources here. So, you know, I think we have to continue shifting towards a modernization strategy that uses shared services, that uses managed security uh, service providers. It really does rely on cloud. Now, cloud is not, you know, the panacea. It, it, there are vulnerabilities, as we've seen recently, uh, with some of the, the cloud mail and cloud other services that the Chinese have gone after. Uh, but to the extent that we can really consolidate down on a more defensible technology stack and then provide those services out to a broader set of organizations that do not have the technical expertise. Most organizations do not have chief information security officers. They maybe have dual-hatted information security uh, uh, teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we, need, we really need to think through how do we get them on a more stable, secure platform, minimize the opportunity for them to make mistakes at the endpoint, uh, and then uh, that allows for safer, more secure compute. Do most victims of ransomware pay the ransom? We don't know. Uh, we, we really don't know, and that is one of the big problems right now is the lack of transparency into the victim set. Mm -hmm. The Congress has tried to address some of these things through some of the uh, uh, incident reporting requirements. Right. The SEC just released a, you know, a, a slightly flawed in incident reporting requirement for publicly traded firms, but we still don't know. And it took a while, for instance, for it to come out that Caesars had paid their ransom. It took about two or three weeks while MGM was in the midst of their recovery. Uh, it, it would improve the policy mindset if we had a better sense of how many are getting hit, how much are being paid, which will then inform the White House, the National Security Council, some of the things Ann Neuberger is trying to do, on what is the policy tool set that can deprive the adversaries their, their opportunity. Every time you pay a criminal, every time you pay a cyber criminal, you're validating the business model. You're giving them capex to go buy more tools, to hire more personnel. Recent, over the summer, there was an event, uh, an organization called Move IT or Move It, that's a secure file transfer uh, product or service. That was hit with a zero day. So we have a criminal actor that has a tool that is previously the exclusive domain of state actors. Mm -hmm. So the game is changing, the barriers to entry are lowering, and the sophistication of criminals is increasing. And do you think that, I mean, you mentioned somebody using a zero-day attack. I mean, are all of these ransomware attacks, they can't all be that sophisticated, right? So oh, I mean, no. is there, we, it sounds like we could probably solve a big chunk of the problem just by improving some of the basic cybersecurity at some of these critical places, hospitals, schools. I mean, is that, is that true? Absolutely. I, you know, it's getting on modern systems. It's in, it deploying multi-factor authentication. That's a bit, been a big thing that 
Jen Easterly over at CISA uh, has been pushing on. You heard Eric talk about a little bit about that cyber hygiene piece. Yeah, you, you raise the baseline of security and you're gonna make it that much harder for the bad guys to get in. It, it's introducing friction. And in part what that does is when you're being chased by the bear, you just gotta be faster than the next guy. Mm -hmm. And the, again, the world's a big place. So we're gonna make ourselves more secure, but they're gonna be other places. They're gonna go to other countries. They're gonna move south and uh, in, in, in Europe and elsewhere. I want to get to another piece of critical infrastructure, which is, you know, election technology. But now when we talk about election security, we're not just talking anymore about election machines. And mm -hmm. there's a whole other conversation about election machines, and we don't have to go down rabbit holes. But I want to start by asking you, as you look at <clears throat> 2024, what does the threat actor landscape look like to you? Is it foreign countries that you're worried about? Is it some other vector here? So when, when I was at Homeland uh, back in the last administration, my, my view is I, I tend to start with what's the worst possible thing that could happen, and then you work back from there. And that afforded me the nickname of catastrophic Krebs. <laughs> it's catchy. Um, it's, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's not always how you want to enter a meeting. Uh, none, <laughs> that guy. Nonetheless, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, the one thing we have right now is time. So we're looking forward to next year. We, it gives us at least 12 to 13 months in advance of the election. Now, threats will start hitting the radar before that. But as I think about the threat landscape for 24, the, the hair on the back of my neck stands up mm -hmm. because we have a different set of actors with a different set of motivations and it's much broader than just foreign threats. Uh, it, in 2020, I, I tended to look at Russia and China as a set of actors that were probably okay with just sitting back and, and letting it play out. This time it's a little bit different in my view. Uh, with, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with the continued support of the Ukrainian military by the United States and our allies, and the continued provision of more sophisticated technologies, including the F-16, at, uh, attackums, and, mm -hmm. and other tools, the, the motivation shift. And so when we think to the early days of the Ukrainian war, like you mentioned earlier, we were expecting hits on U.S. infrastructure. I don't think that expectation was necessarily wrong. I don't think the Shields Up campaign from the U.S. government was wrong. I think it was perhaps we got the timing wrong. And so as we continue to provide those weapons to Ukraine, is the, 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 Putin suffers some, some hits on, in the homeland, he's gonna perhaps be a little bit more motivated to reach out and touch someone. And I think that could happen here. We still don't think, though, we don't have any evidence that suggests the Russians, Chinese, Iranians, or anyone else actually has the technical capability or has demonstrated that ability to change a vote, stop counting, or otherwise interfere with the, the certification process. And that's an important point to emphasize, that right Absolutely. now we do not think a foreign government has the ability to break into voting Correct. machines and transfer votes in meaningful ways and change. Yeah. However, that's a myopic approach in my view. Okay. Because look, the, the concept may not be to actually change the outcome of the election technically. It instead could be get into some point of the election process, make it wobble a little bit, and then that cascades out over the information ecosystem and undermines confidence in the process. And that becomes the next big thing. And, and that is part of how the information uh, the, the, the doctrine of both the Russians and the Chinese work, it's technical and psychological. 
So if they you can use a technical attack to create a psychological effect, then that's success for them. So we have to think the same way. We have to think about resilience. We have to think about getting out in front of some of these attacks. And in part, that's what we were doing in 2020 with the rumor control that now uh, rumor and reality uh, page that CISA maintains is you identify those points that could be potentially attacked and you provide the underlying information that shows how the resilience is built into the system. And I will always go back to paper ballots is the absolute best resilience measure in the American electoral system. Right. So <clears throat> if I'm hearing you say that you insert a little bit of doubt into the system about the credibility of the election, that has a cascading ripple effect. So 2020 obviously gave every one of our adversaries a roadmap. Yep. So as you see, for if you're Russia or China <clears throat> and you've made a decision, first of all, let's presume that they've made the decision to actually try doing that, which would be a pretty consequential move on their part because they know exactly what they're right. getting in for. And, and I do think they have red lines built in that would say, hey, you can't go to this point. But again, Things can change rapidly with what's going on in Ukraine, well, I guess, as well as with China. Yeah, it's like and what Taiwan. is that point, right? I mean, if, if it's if it's one rumor that takes over, do we have another January sixth? I mean, how easy is it to just replicate what we saw happen, you know, less than four years ago? Well, I mean, let's we need to go back to you know, the early twenty teens when we talk about the continued manipulation of the information environment by the Russians. And to be clear, the Chinese are no slouches themselves. In, in, in fact, two years ago, the, uh, a, a French think tank released a report that talked about the Russification of Chinese information operations and how they're being <laughs> much more aggressive. They've been here for a long time, yeah. right? They've been on the ground in local jurisdictions, uh, bribing, corrupting, influencing at a local level. Right. But we're seeing it kind of ratchet up. In that fact, is new for them. Yeah, and, yeah. and even last year, uh, they went after a U.S., some U.S. And, and Australian rare earth companies attacking their environmental record. I mean, mm. the, the goal there of a Chinese firm attacking someone else for an environmental record. Yeah. But, but it shows, again, the sophistication, the evolving technique, and their willingness to, to put it up a notch. And, and uh, Chris Painter talked about Russia, the hurricane, China, climate change. They're starting to get, the Chinese are, are starting to kind of move over into that uh, discrete natural disaster. Well, what form. do you think accounts for that, too? And it's, it's a foreign policy question, I suppose, to a degree. But, I mean, historically, China has been, you know, reluctant to try and interfere directly with the other, you know, the, the, the internal affairs of other countries. Now, you mentioned the state and local efforts that they've mm -hmm. made. You know, some of those actually quite overt. <clears throat> but are they watching the success that Russia had in 2016 and even subsequently <clears throat> and saying we can benefit from this by agitating, by making people think uh, things that maybe are not true by using these kind of propaganda operations in the U.S.? Well, I, 2016, the Russians put the playbook out. Yeah. In 2020, the Iranians copied it. I would fully expect the, the Chinese to take a harder look and make sure that works. Uh, but but, but it, for China, we are seeing a full-scale shift in terms of how they are using soft power, how they're managing internally the governance structure. From a, a, from a security perspective internally, the Chinese have swapped out a bunch of the economic ministers and put in more security-minded securocrats, yeah. gotten much more aggressive domestically on interactions with U.S. companies. We've seen a number of different companies over the last six months get raided by uh, the Ministry of State Security. So it, it is much more difficult for U.S. firms to operate in, in China. And they, you really have to be thinking, if you are a U.S. company, 
operating in China, you have to think about how you kind of cabin off those operations to ensure that what happens in China stays in China. You and others talked about 2020 as being the most secure election that we've ever had. I mean, in, in taking that same rubric and explain what you meant by secure, because we're talking about lots of different factors right now, rate where we are in 2020 for how we are in terms of 2024, in terms of the security that you were describing when you were in office. Right. So 2020, most secure. Uh, it was also the most litigated. <laughs> it was the most scrutinized. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the most... Uh, from a from a technological perspective, it was. You're using a lot of polite superlatives. Right? Yeah, I, but but let's let's you know, <laughs> let's clarify what we're talking yeah, about. Please, here. Yeah, please. Um, yeah. Most, most papered. Yeah. You know, Ninety-five percent of votes cast had a, a paper trail associated with it, and, it, and many of those were subsequently audited. And it was the most audited election. Which is positive from your Absolutely. perspective. Yeah. So the trend lines are 2016, uh, fewer than 80% of votes cast had a paper ballot associated. And a paper ballot gives you the ability to go back and recount, to audit, to ensure that there was no manipulation. There were no late night you know, ballot drops or anything like that because you got the paper ballot and you can tie it back to, a, to, to the voting record. Uh, 2020, it got up around 95% in part because some states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and a few others actually swapped off the touchscreen only devices into the ones that generate the paper ballots. I think we'll continue to see the modernization of systems through 2024. There are some states, Louisiana specifically, that is still on that touchscreen system. Uh, and then there are scattered jurisdictions in Texas, Indiana, Tennessee, and elsewhere. Uh, but again, we see that number continue to kind of hover around 95, which is great. I'd like to see more audits continue to roll out audits to give that confidence after the fact. Uh, and we know that the intelligence community and the security uh, services are, are very acutely focused on identifying act bad activity before it happens, getting in the way, and as, as Rob Joyce would say at NSA, putting friction in the mm -hmm. process, and you know, General Nakasone at Cyber Command assisting in hunt forwards, and that, I think, was a key element for helping us understand what the threats were in 2020 when they were operating in Ukraine and elsewhere and defending those election systems, we could bring back the targeting sets. And we saw that the Russians were looking at Ukraine election night reporting and voter registration. So as the U.S. government goes to these jurisdictions and says, hey, if you have one last dollar to spend, put it on election night reporting and, and uh, voter registration. And so you, you, you think that the systems themselves are secure from outside penetration. Do you worry about things like insider threats? And, and, and on a physical level, I'm talking about. Uh, this is the emerging in 2022 was, I think, the big concern. Some of the things we saw, for instance, down in Coffee County, Georgia, mm -hmm. where election officials actually turned over election systems right. to third parties that were ideologically motivated, which is another polite way of saying it. Um, I, I, as we look to 2024, about 50 percent in many jurisdictions, 50 percent of the election workforce is turning over. And so that's putting new recruits, new uh, newly trained individuals. But it also creates some opportunity for those that want to create mischief, again, including ideologically minded folks to come in. And now we have an insider risk problem. And, and that is one of the areas that I am most worried about. 2024 is someone that that has a bad idea in mind can come into the election uh, office has direct access uh, and, and may seek to do harm and and there are some some playbooks out there now I think that would could give them a hey you can do something bad and do I think that uh, someone's going to come in and try to rig an election internally no but again I think that there is a point they may want to make make the system wobble, say, see, we told you, 
And from there, uh, it's, it's kind of off to the, the worst kind of races. And uh, as a last question to tee up our, our final guest here, I want to ask you about Section 702 reauthorization, which is a little bit in the weeds. But historically, cybersecurity has been a big area for bipartisan uh, uh, cooperation in the Congress. We're seeing a real divide now over surveillance authorities in 702. Just very briefly, how does that debate and the possibility of 702 expiring affect the cybersecurity mission of the U.S. government? Well, look, the last time we reauthorized 702, it was no walk in the park. So I think this is continual. Uh, let's make sure that we have the right authorities, the oversight mechanisms, uh, governance in place. Uh, but it, there, there's no question that the 702 collection authorities gives us deeper insight into what the adversaries are doing. Uh, that informs domestic cybersecurity. Again, if we can get a sense of what the, the Russian SVR, the GRU, the Chinese security services, what they want to do, and then we can flow that down into critical infrastructure, just like we've seen recently uh, with the, the invasion into uh, uh, Ukraine that it put our, uh, our critical infrastructure into a better defensive posture. Those are good things. Great. Well, Chris Krebs, thank you for bringing a lot of issues to our attention. It's an alarming conversation, but a reassuring one. I want to leave people with many, uh, uh, some confidence in that. So thanks very much thank for coming here. Thank okay, that's great. Thanks, good morning. Uh, I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, my guest this morning is Lisa Monaco. Good morning. You just saw on, on video, Lisa is the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, the number two uh, official of the Justice Department, and has been a backbone of law enforcement and counterterrorism for many years, uh, as people who follow Washington know. So, Lisa, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, I want to begin with a question not about cybersecurity, which, which we'll get to, but about the state of our country. I think many of us watched your boss, Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, being questioned, I'm just going to say stridently, harshly, last week by the House Judiciary Committee. It was, a, it was tough to watch. And I want to <coughs> ask you, um, when you and, and Merrick Garland get back to, to the Justice Department, what do you say to employees about the kinds of attacks that he as attorney general is receiving? And how do you respond to the republic, the insistent Republican claim that this Justice Department is, is, is politicized? Well, David, first of all, thanks very much to The Washington Post for having me um, this morning. Uh, you know, I hear those statements, those attacks, the rhetoric. I hear all of those statements as somebody who spent the majority of her career in the Justice Department. Before I was privileged to have this position, I spent 15 years in the Justice Department as a career federal prosecutor, as a chief of staff at the FBI, as the leader of the National Security Division. And so I know well that the men and the women of the Justice Department don't get up every morning and go to their job based on who's in the White House or who controls Congress. So the attacks, the rhetoric that we are hearing uh, about the Justice Department bear no resemblance to the Justice Department that I know. Now, we have a lot of scrutiny in the work we do. We receive plenty of criticism, and that's okay. That's good. That's appropriate. We have incredible, profound responsibility in the work that we do. We deal with grave issues of tremendous importance. But singling out individual prosecutors, individual career public servants 
simply for doing their job is dangerous. And, and I say that, David, because we are in an environment today where uh, we have seen an alarming increase in threats against public servants uh, simply for doing their job. We, we had a situation a year ago where an individual armed with an AR-15 and dressed in body armor tried to breach an FBI field office. So we live in very dangerous times, and these are men and women, law enforcement agents, prosecutors, who take on incredibly dangerous work, um, who literally are putting their lives on the line to protect strangers, to go after violent criminals, to hunt down terrorists, drug traffickers. And that danger is being added to by this rhetoric, and it's wrong. It's just plain wrong. So just to, to be clear with our audience and people watching uh, on, on our streaming channel, when you say dangerous, you literally mean that employees of the Justice Department have to worry about their physical safety every day now because of these threats. Look, I get something called urgent reports. It's reports sent in from the field all around the country. Um, and there's an increasing number of them that are reporting on threats received by our prosecutors, by our law enforcement agents. Um, and, you know, this is, we have seen an uptick in threats against public servants. Um, and as I, I cited, the, you know, the very alarming instance um, in Ohio of, of August of 2022. So, um, yes, this is real. So to close this out, what is it that you'd say to people uh, in Congress, around the country, um, to, to, to encourage them to behave more responsibly and knock it off? I would say I hope people understand that um, scrutiny, oversight, criticism, that's appropriate. Um, that's welcome. That's what we owe the American people, responses to that, because we are public servants, because we take on profound responsibilities. But I'd also say I hope people understand that the men and women in the Justice Department, the law enforcement agents, the career prosecutors, the analysts, the professional staff, they're real people doing hard and dangerous jobs. They're mothers, their fathers, their husbands, their wives. And some of them are taking on tremendous risk and personal sacrifice, particularly our law enforcement agents, uh, to do a job to protect the American people. And they do so uh, to uphold the Constitution. And that's what I'd like them to understand about the men and women in the Justice Department. So let's turn to today's topic of cyber threats. And I, I want to begin with a, a story that we carried in the Washington Post on Friday about hacks of uh, casinos and other uh, facilities owned by MGM that were carried out by teens and young adults mm -hmm. who were working with one of the most prominent ransomware gangs. Without asking you to comment on the specifics of any investigation. You're well trained, David. <laughs> well. I just know if I asked, I wouldn't get anywhere. Um, I, say what you can about this phenomenon of, we call it juvenile hacking. Uh, but it's obviously on the rise. Um, what are you seeing and what are you doing about it? So uh, first, you, you're quite right. We're investigating um, the, the hacks that you mentioned. So I won't get into the specifics of those. But I will kind of zoom out and talk about 
uh, the broader challenge that we face and what we're doing about ransomware, digital extortion, and this phenomenon of juvenile hacking groups. You know, w the first thing I'd say is it's not that new. Folks may recall, if you, f if you follow cyber issues closely, the Lapsus Group, and the last S is a dollar sign, um, which came under scrutiny uh, in the last couple of years for um, hacking a number of blue chip companies. Uh, and they involved, including Uber, Microsoft, and a few others, um, and they involved some juveniles um, in, in that group. So what we are seeing is a phenomenon where, quite literally, um, juveniles and others here and abroad are, have kind of limitless access to an online um, for-profit kind of criminal ecosystem. And I'll tell you something, David, what I saw, um, you mentioned my counterterrorism work, this juvenile hacking phenomenon is not unlike what we saw in the terrorism landscape, individuals radicalized online. And how do we as a federal government, as a federal national security enterprise, address that? Um, how do we help our state and local partners address that? You know, whether it's um, online uh, radicalization, whether it's online hacking, a lot of that work has to be done in partnership with our state and local um, partners to find ways to interdict, to kind of redirect uh, individuals, uh, particularly juveniles, to go down uh, a different path. When it comes to ransomware, digital extortion, and, and other challenges, whether it's perpetrated by juveniles or adults here or abroad, you know, I came back to the department two and a half years ago in April of 2021. Two weeks later, we had the colonial uh, pipeline attack, uh, and what I saw was a more intensified, more diversified, and accelerated cyber threat. Uh, and so we looked very hard internally and said, what are we doing in the Justice Department to maximize our impact? And we, frankly, had to pivot. And we have undertaken that pivot quite deliberately. Pivot to a focus on prevention, on disruption, and frankly, putting victims at the center of our approach. Not unlike, I will say, David, the approach we've taken to other threats like terrorism. So now, today, we tell our prosecutors, agents, analysts, yes, we want to continue to bring criminal charges. Yes, we want to continue to arrest and extradite uh, individuals, those behind the keyboard. And we have done that quite successfully. And we can talk about a whole host of those cases. But we also are constantly looking for ways to disrupt, to prevent the next attack, to work with victim companies to gain information so that we can do a number of things, so that we can go and claw back ransomware payments made uh, through cryptocurrency, as we did with the Colonial Pipeline attack, so that we can get into and literally hack the hackers, infiltrate the hackers' networks, as we did with the top five ransomware uh, group, the Hive group, swipe those decryptor keys, and give them out to the victims before they uh, suffer the those, consequences. Those are, those are aggressive tactics. They are reminiscent of what you used uh, in the counterterrorism mm -hmm. uh, period. One thing I remember was uh, the widespread use of stings mm -hmm. uh, to lure people uh, who were ready to commit 
illegal actions yeah. into a, a net that ended up being the FBI. Are you using similar tactics against so, these juvenile hackers? So we are using a whole host of techniques, and, and all these tools are on the table, right? Whether it's our law enforcement tools, which we're using in new and creative ways, uh, whether it's the sanctions tools, export controls, and you know, we are using lures, quite frankly, to try and get individuals um, who are operating from perceived safe havens, right? So the, a feature of the cyber threat today that we face is one that is a blended threat between nation state actors and criminal groups, often forming what I call marriages of convenience and opportunity. Sometimes you will see a criminal group kind of moonlighting um, uh, to, uh, for, uh, for a military intelligence service, for instance. Um, and so, and the intelligence services in the nation states are using those criminal groups for deniability. In, in many instances. And what we have been able to be successful in doing in some instances is when those people travel and leave that safe haven, we are working with our international partners uh, to have them act under our authorities. And ultimately, we are successful and have been successful in extraditing them and bringing them here and having them face justice in a US courtroom. Before we leave this area, help us to understand the psychology of these dual hackers. They're working with dangerous people. I mean, the, 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 the ransomware gangs who ex, ex, executed the Colonial Pipeline uh, hack, I mean, th these are s serious bad guys. Mm -hmm. What is it that's attracting young people? Is, is it the thrill of being on the cutting edge of cyber? Is it, uh, you know, just, you know, climbing Everest because it's there? What's going on? So um, far be it from me to kind of get into the, to the mindset here of criminal actors, adults, or juveniles. But I think a few things um, are true. I think the barriers to entry are quite low uh, when it comes to um, accessing the online ecosystem. And the FBI is working night and day to track these cyber gangs, and that's really what they are, to see them move from group to group. And we do see fluidity amongst uh, these actors. Uh, and again, the access, the ability to access an online uh, for-profit criminal ecosystem. You know, we see ransomware tools being um, sold on the dark web. We see, uh, and we have been very successful in the last year, taking down uh, criminal um, illicit marketplaces where access to uh, victims uh, networks are being sold by criminal groups, right? We see ransomware as a service. You've heard software as a service? It's now ransomware as a service being sold by criminal groups. So we're having to go after the pivot I mentioned includes going after the entire ecosystem. So that's the hackers themselves. That's their infrastructure taking down the botnets, for instance, that they use, working with our international counterparts to do that. It means going after the cryptocurrency that they're using uh, and that they are um, using to launder their proceeds, the exchanges and the mixers that they are using, all of that is part of the criminal ecosystem that fuels these uh, malicious criminal, uh, cyber criminal actors, and we're going after all of it. Lisa, we are perilously close to a government <coughs> shutdown. Hmm. We'll have to see what the coming days bring, but 
Let me ask you, uh, for the Department of Justice and the various agencies that you, that you help oversee, what would a shutdown mean? And maybe in particular, let me ask, in terms of cybersecurity, where there's just this constant bang, 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 uh, what would a shutdown do to our capabilities? So um, it's, first of all, it's irresponsible because it um, really will impact our ability to do our job across the board. Now, um, it, folks who have life and safety missions will uh, continue to do their work, but all of the support that they have, all of the work that we do and that we fund with our state and local partners, when, when we talk about violent crime, the lion's share of that work to combat violent crime is being done by our state and local law enforcement partners. Our effort to fund those, um, our ability to fund those efforts to work uh, in partnership, all of that um, is dramatically uh, reduced uh, and hindered by a government shutdown. So it's irresponsible across the board, the people who are manning uh, our cyber defenses. I mean, there is the, the cascading effects of something like this um, is really, I think, quite, uh, quite dangerous and quite irresponsible. Uh, and we need to be able to have, uh, to give our uh, employees certainty uh, that they can come to work and, and do their job. So just to underline this, if there is a government shutdown, there will be real law enforcement effects. Absolutely. So I want to turn to something that was discussed earlier in this program, and that is uh, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, which is up for renewal. It's a complicated uh, issue. Just take uh, 30 or 40 seconds and explain to this audience what Section uh, 702 allows you to do and why you think it's so important. Well, thanks for the opportunity, because let me tell you, David, if we lose this authority, it is catastrophic for our national security efforts. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is a foreign intelligence authority that allows our intelligence community to go after the communications of non-US persons operating overseas. Let me underscore that. Non-US persons, foreign individuals operating outside the United States. It is vital to our ability to understand threats from cyber threats to nation state adversaries to um, Russia, Chinese, Iran, North Korea plans and intentions across a whole host of threats. You know, in my various roles, including this one and the one I occupied previously as President Obama's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, I spent every morning looking at the President's daily brief, the morning intelligence. Uh, that has come in overnight on the most serious threats. A huge amount of that intelligence is gathered as a result of this authority. Now, why is it vital to the job I do today, to the job of the FBI, whose job is to protect the United States, to protect the homeland? It's because our ability to actually take action, and the FBI is solely responsible to take, to, for taking action to prevent what happens uh, from those adversaries here at home, their ability to do that successfully is really dependent on their ability to have that information from 702 and to be able to access it and understand it. So what do I mean by that? Our ability to understand what China, Russia, Iran are doing in cyberspace against our critical infrastructure 
We get to understand that because of this authority, and then the FBI gets to act to prevent that, to mitigate those threats because of their ability to use that information and to understand it. I'll give you a very vivid personal example, David. So before I came into this job in October of 2020 or the fall of 2020, uh, the FBI, uh, because of their ability to use and understand information from 702, learned that a hostile nation state was targeting the personal emails of former US government officials. Turns out one of those officials was me. Because at the time I was a former government official. Because they were able to access that information, to understand it, they were able to contact me and brief me on this threat so that I could immediately take steps, defensive steps, to protect myself. It is that kind of real-time ability, and they do that time and again with US critical infrastructure, US companies that are being targeted in that way uh, by malicious actors in cyberspace. So this is a vital, vital tool. So here's the, here's the problem. Um, with all the benefits that you described to, to national security, uh, there are abuses. We ran an article last May based on a Foreign, foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court document, mm -hmm. uh, documented that 278,000 times there had been inappropriate um, mistakes uh, in, in collection that involved crime victims, uh, inappropriate th the things involving January 6 riot suspects. I could go down the list. Mm -hmm. The FBI said it fixed the problem. Uh, in our story, but I think people worry, and it's real. This is an area where people on the left and people on the right are both worried about government power to intrude, to gather information. So please address that. Yeah. How do you stop the abuses, and why should people who are worried about their privacy be less worried? So those concerns are real, they are important, um, and the authorities that we have, the, the powers that we have and that we operate under, including 702, must only be used with oversight, with transparency, and with accountability when they are misused, when mistakes uh, happen, as they do. What I would say is these are tools that are overseen by a federal court populated by judges, Article Three federal judges. They are overseen by the US Congress, by the Inspector General of uh, the uh, Justice Department, by lawyers across the executive branch. So there are layers. Now, is that, does that give you comfort that no mistakes will ever be made again? No, but it does tell you that there are checks, as there absolutely must be, and we need to reauthorize this vital tool with appropriate um, changes to assure folks that we are using this tool in accordance with our responsibilities under the law and under the Constitution. That's what we owe the American people. Uh, in the time that we have remaining, Lisa, I want to make sure that we talk about AI and what you uh, as a top law enforcement official think about the, the dangers of AI. I heard a group of the the most prominent um, computer science experts on this last weekend talk, and they said that, 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 uh, 
among the two biggest concerns they had, one was the use of AI for cyber, mm -hmm. that, that through machine learning and then you know the in yeah. incredible intelligence that we that we see, um, people will be able to use AI to find the precise vulnerabilities and then get inside and exploit them. So I want to ask um, how you're going to fight that. Uh, the answer usually is, well, the best defense against AI is AI. <laughs> so talk us through that, and how confident are you that AI is going to be good enough on defense to, to stop this threat? So AI is front of mind uh, uh, for all of us. I think in a world where technology is literally the quintessential double-edged sword, providing great opportunities but also great risk, it may well be the sharpest sword. Uh, that we face, uh, and really one of the greatest challenges, I think, of our time to use it uh, responsibly to harness both the opportunities and control the risks. It poses tremendous risks in the hands of malicious actors to identify, as you said, um, uh, at scale and uh, speed vulnerabilities uh, that can be accessed by uh, hackers. It um, can feed tremendous um, deep fakes and scale and um, a kind of spread of misinformation and disinformation uh, uh, and can really fuel digital authoritarianism. But it can also, when used ethically, when used responsibly and lawfully, uh, can help us harness our own powers. It can it could spur innovation. It can help us detect the, um, the work of those hackers to find uh, our vulnerabilities. So one of the things we are very focused on at the Justice Department is making sure that the components that feed AI, that will feed the next generation, right, that um, our adversaries are daily trying to get at this disruptive technology components, right, that feeds AI or quantum or any other number of disruptive technologies, how do we make sure that those components are not getting into the wrong hands, getting into the hands of our adversaries who are trying every day to gain their military intelligence, national security, and economic advantage by um, stealing those disruptive technologies. We set up what um, I call the Disruptive Technology Strike Force, working with the Commerce Department, working with DHS and others, and working, importantly, with the private sector, right? Those who are manufacturing and innovating these critical uh, elements of technology that is going to fuel our ability to keep our military and intelligence uh, edge. So we have a profound responsibility to protect those technologies and to use them uh, ethically, responsibly, and in a lawful manner. So we're heading into the 2024 election cycle. I, I suspect we're really in it now. Um, what is the Justice Department, the FBI, going to do to prevent uh, gross manipulation through disinformation, misinformation of our election? Uh, process uh, of our information environment as we head toward this crucial moment of choice without making people afraid that their First Amendment rights are threatened? So we're working every day with our um, intelligence, law enforcement, and international partners. Um, so much as we have seen historically of this can be fueled by malicious actors and uh, intelligence services overseas. 
uh, military and otherwise, who are looking to sow discord in our um, political process, looking uh, to sow divisions between us and our allies. Uh, and the Justice Department, it, through the FBI, as a member of the intelligence community, the national security community, is working every day to detect that uh, and work with our international partners to, to push back Based on what you see, are the Russians coming at us again? I think the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, you name it. I think this disinformation and misinformation space, the ability um, to, uh, to try and sow divisions uh, is quite apparent. And in some instances, uh, the efforts to repress dissent reaches uh, outside of their own borders to here at home, as we have seen in cases we have brought against Iranian actors and Chinese actors uh, as well. So a last question. Uh, when FBI Director Chris Wray, when you, when others speak about uh, foreign intelligence threats, they often cite Chinese hacking, mm -hmm. uh, the, the intensity, the volume, the pace of Chinese efforts to get inside our systems uh, as, as the biggest worry we face. Speak a little bit about China. Um, if you uh, can tell us anything about the investigation of TikTok, the decision whether TikTok should be allowed to continue in the United States, but just generally, give us a sense of the Chinese threat matrix. So look, the Chinese are the most persistent um, and aggressive um, effort uh, actors when it comes to cyber-enabled espionage, um, trying to um, gain access to critical technologies, as I mentioned, R&D, um, through a whole host of means, cyber and otherwise. Um, President Xi, uh, as we know, wants to be a power on the world stage and to be seen as such, um, and is trying actively through their intelligence services um, and uh, throughout to go after that technology that will gain that uh, critical edge. Uh, so we are um, strengthening our foreign investment uh, review capabilities, modernizing them, um, focusing on uh, no longer, it's not, it's not just a mechanism to screen uh, investments in brick and mortar transactions. Uh, today, the data is the asset that we have to protect, the data that is fueling the AI uh, that our strategic competitors want to use to fuel their own military and intelligence advantage. So the, the thing I've been very struck by, um, David, is the intersection today between the technology and national security threats is of a, is of a different kind than when I was last in government only you know, four, five, six years ago. Uh, and that is a tremendous focus for us at the Justice Department, whether it's foreign investment screening, outbound uh, investment screening, helping uh, to control the and enforce the export controls on disruptive technologies. These are the things we are exceptionally focused on. And, and, and the investigation of whether TikTok should be allowed to continue continues, I take that it. That continues, and I will say, David, you know, the, the focus on um, the Chinese efforts to steal and gain an advantage through technologies and otherwise is not new, not new focus for me. In one of my prior jobs as head of the National Security Division, I started the investigation that became the uh, indictment of the five members of the Chinese PLA uh, for the first case of Chinese, or rather, cyber-enabled economic espionage. So uh, the fight continues. So uh, Lisa Monaco has been in this fight for a long time. Uh, I want to thank Lisa for, for joining us today and all our speakers 
for this special program on cybersecurity. It's great to have all of you. Special thanks to, to, to Lisa and the audience. Please um, come back and look at what we have to, to offer on Washington Post Live uh, almost every day. Uh, we'd love to have you join those programs as well, but thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.